So we're continuing our study of Philippians. Uh, today we find ourselves in the second chapter, and we're going to work our way from verse 5 to verse 11. Now, this is seven verses, so this is going to take us a little while. So if you have a rose at home and you have a relative who doesn't attend church, I'm going to text him and be like, go to the house, take the rose out. Don't eat any of it. You're a relative, but you're not. Oh, you're not that close. Just do me a favor. You take the rest out. I'll do my best to have us out in time and manner. I know the nursery workers would certainly appreciate it. And so as we as we come to this passage, you remember, I look behind me to make sure I don't step on something more off the stage. You remember that we talked a couple weeks ago. We said that really from about 127, uh, from about chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 17, that we see this same idea carried through. And this this idea that's captured in chapter 127 and says, be worthy of the gospel. And Paul goes through and he enumerates different ways that we can be live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so that's, that's still very much weighing and coming to bear on the text that we find ourselves in today. Now last week and the week before, we drove hard what it is to be unified, right? And so we spent a lot of time trying to understand what Paul means by finding unity in the gospel. And so he talked about you know, being of one mind, sharing the same love. And he came back to it again and he said, well, he said, in full accord, then he came back to it and he said, of the same mind. The same mind. That there would be, would be found together in this unity of purpose and direction. Well, he comes back to it today. He comes back to it today uh, with this word, mind. Let me read for us verses 5 to 11, and we'll begin our study. Starting in verse 5, Paul writes to the church of Philippi, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by, being, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so as he writes this to them, he said in verse, verse 2 of chapter 2 that they need to have one mind, they need to have the same love, they need to be in full accord. And he returns to it again, he says, and have one mind. And here, in verse 5, he says, have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. Now the interesting thing is that he doesn't write to them and say, uh, now you, John, John Lynch, you, I know, I, I try and find somebody that's looking down and really just helps around the corner. You're reading, that's right. It's a good book. And so what he says is, sorry, John. What he says is, it's not, what he's not saying is, John, have my Christ. And then he goes over and he says, uh, Steve, would you, would you have my Christ? And then going over and finding some other group, he says, Carol B., please, Carol B., have my Christ. Instead, what he does is he writes to this group and he says, Among you, together, everybody, 
May the mind of Christ be among you. So it's not written on an individual level, but a corporate level. He's still driving at what it is to be worthy of the gospel. He's still driving in unity. He's still driving in unity. But there's good news in Christ's too. He writes this to him and he says, it's yours. It's yours. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's not saying before them an impossible task and say, you know, you know what, go out and do this, and you just come back, and when you can't get it, you write Paul and say, Paul, we tried, we tried really hard, but we just can't get together. Instead, he writes and he says, hey, this is, this is an actuality about you. You have this mind. Now let people see it. You see, when Paul writes this to them, Paul is pointing to their unified Bible. And he's drawing back on this idea that they need to consider others more significant than themselves. You and I need to consider others more significant than ourselves. And then as we also read last week, they need to look not only to their own interests, but to the interests of others. This is how we evidence, we show that we have the mind of Christ working in us. And this is how we foster that. This is how we grow that. That as much as we are found to be Christ, so in as much as you actually are a Christian, right? You've identified with the, with the suffering, the death of Christ, you confessed Him as Lord, and you've accept, accepted His sacrifice on Calvary to cover and atone for your sins. You're found in Christ. So inasmuch as that is true for you, you have the mind of Christ. But we can do things, we can act in ways that are contrary, that are in opposition to that. So we can, we can take preference, we can allow that to develop inside, so we can be selfish. We can say things that, you know, to make us look good, to make other people look bad. We can do things that elevate self and denigrate and say bad things about other people. We can be very selfish. I tend to want really good things for me. It's hard to want really good things for other people. But what we have in us is the mind of Christ that testifies against those things. And we remember the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Jesus is speaking of himself. It really encapsulates his ministry in this verse. He says, the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life is a ransom for many. See, Jesus in a very real sense throws in on the ultimate challenge. He says, you want to, you have my mind in you, but to be like me is to serve. To be like me is to suffer. And to be like me is to consider others more significant than yourselves. To humble yourself. Jesus here in verses 5-11 through 11, is said as the example par excellence. Jesus is what we shoot for. Jesus here, as Paul uses him, is the height of all the things that he's built for, from 127 through 24. Jesus is who we should focus our eyes on. Now, as we move over the next two to three verses specifically, we're going to cover some pretty deep, deep, deep uh, theology. But as we do that, what we should observe is this movement from pre-existence, where Jesus is out there, he's outside of time with God, and he moves into the incarnation, he comes in bodily form, and he dies, and he rises in exaltation, in 
he returns to heaven. And so that's the, that's the narrative that Paul sets along this, this deep theology that people have really wrestled with for a very long time, much longer than we're going to give treatment to this morning, uh, much to some people's uh, joy. But he writes in verse 6, that was a He writes in verse 6 that who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now this is, this is kind of a troubling verse in some ways. Jesus existed in the form of God. So we've got a few things to play. So we've got he's in the form of God. He didn't consider equality something to be grasped, but he is in the form of God. So what is he talking about? See, Christ exists outside of time. So prior to creation, Christ outside of time. He's dwelling in the Godhead. You've got the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit, and they're living in perfect harmony with one another. God speaks, and creation happens in the hand of the Son. As we read in Hebrews earlier, that He's the agent of creation. And so creation comes into existence. Humanity falls. What we also know is that form, here referenced by Paul, is, is a physical representation of an actual reality. So as Jesus is the form of God, he is very God. We read in Ezra, we read in uh, Ezekiel, rather, that uh, in 43.2, it says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. So as we see the glory of God coming from the east and is moving across the land, that this is so amazing, so awesome. What is Ezekiel's position in all this? He hits the ground, he covers his face. As the glory of God moves through, as we read in Hebrews 1 3 earlier, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is God. That he exists as God prior to stepping in, into time and into our story. You see, he also writes that equality was not something to be grasped. Now, there's two possible meanings as we look at this. And so there's two, two problems, or one problem and then one really good answer, one really good interpretation. The first problem is there's people that read this and they said, okay, <clears throat> equality is not something to be grasped. I think that King James Version says something about robbery. It's using an older uh, translation to understand what's going on there. But he says it's not something to be grasped. So there's people that read that, and they said, hold on a second. Equality is not something to be grasped? Are they trying to say that Jesus isn't equal to God? Well, that seems to be an obvious understanding. And so they proceeded along this path of, Jesus isn't as good as God the Father. He simply can't attain to, he can't reach a quality of God. So he's somehow some lesser power, some smaller demigod of sorts. Well, see, this creates a real problem for us. If you can't attain the quality of equality with God, then he quite simply can't be God. And if you can't be God, then he's not able to offer a sacrifice to him. Sins. This is just really problematic. This is a big problem for us. But if instead, as we look at this passage, we understand it this way: that when Paul writes that Jesus didn't consider equality.
we translate it, we understand what he's trying to communicate is when Jesus lived as God, when he existed as God, he didn't avail himself. He didn't take advantage of his position. He didn't greedily grasp and lay hold of his privileged position. Because you see, to have done that would have kept him from coming, would have kept him from offering himself as a sacrifice. Jesus, in the embodiment of humility, didn't take advantage of all that was his rightfully. Jesus, dwelling as God, didn't flaunt or take advantage of his position. He simply didn't. Verses 7 and 8 kind of meet that out for us. He says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. So again, we come to kind of a troubling verse for some people in verse 7. You see, in the history of interpretation, as people look at verse 7, they were really struck with and struggled with how to understand what it means to empty oneself. So if I empty a bucket, I'm pouring it out, right? Hopefully, and there's something in this bucket that I've got. So there's something I'm pouring out. And so this question started nagging at me. He said, well, what exactly did he empty himself of? This is where Harrison started. You see, theologians, as they looked at this, said well, he emptied himself of something. And so they, they skip ahead a little bit and they say, he's coming as a man. He's real. He had flesh and he died. And so what that leads them to is this understanding that Jesus divested himself of divinity. He took his divinity and he poured that out. And this was, this was the heresy that they created. Because you see, they couldn't understand this any other way other than to say that Jesus poured out his divinity. But again, this does damage to Jesus' ability to be a sin sacrifice for us. This does damage to our understanding that Jesus lived in perfect harmony with full divinity and full humanity. You see, he didn't pour out his divinity. Instead, it's, it's a reference back to grasp. He rid himself of his privileged position. He made himself become nothing, as other people have translated it. He considered himself to be nothing. He looked not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. In humility, he considered others more significant than himself. And here Paul gives us the height of those statements. That Jesus emptied himself. And the best way to understand this is by looking at the words that kind of Paul didn't want people to be confused at what it meant for Jesus to empty himself. And so he gave a variety of words that go back and they modify what it is to empty oneself. He says, being born, or he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It's the first way that Jesus emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant. Now this is an indication primarily of, of his mission, and not really his, his class and a social status. You see, when Jesus emptied himself, 
he became a servant. As we just read in Matthew 20, 28, he came to serve, not to be served, and offer his life as a ransom for many. And so when we talk about this mind of Christ and what it is to have a mind of Christ, it's serving. I mean, Christianity and this church really exists, and what we should be is a body of people that serve, a body of people that, out of deference to ourselves, consider others more important than ourselves. That's what Jesus did. He took the form of a servant. He existed in the form of God, but he took the form of a servant. A servant is rarely understood and recognized in their community by the things they do. And so you remember Jesus on the night of the Last Supper, and he sat with the disciples. What did Jesus do? Slight murmuring. Jesus, on this last Sunday evening of the Last Supper, he took and washed their feet. You see, he took a bowl of water, and he took his, he took his towel from around his waist, and he began touch what was truly disgusting. Touch something, you know that in, in Jesus' day, you couldn't command someone to touch your feet. You couldn't direct somebody to go to touch your feet because they were considered to be foul, or considered to be disgusting. And any amount of walking around in your open-toed shoes would reveal to you that this is an actuality. They get pretty gross. But he took and he served them. And he showed the true nature of his mission by choosing to wash their feet. You and I need to find ways that we can wash the feet of one another. You and I need to find ways that we can minister to one another. We need to not look for committees, for teams, for projects that we can head, but ways that we can help out other people. Ways that we can be a part of considering their interests, the things they're involved in, more significant than the things we're interested in, the things we're involved in. See, because this is the heart of Christianity. It's all of us standing in a circle saying, not my will, but yours, not my will, but yours, not my, my will, but yours. And Jesus is in the middle of us, directing the whole thing. You see, when we're so captivated by trying to advance the things that everybody else has around us wants to advance, then I've got some time to advance my own I simply don't have time to advance my own because I'm so occupied being served, of serving the needs of those around him. Jesus took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. You see, this is a testimony to Jesus' full humanity. A couple months ago, we preached, or I preached a sermon out of Mark. You remember Jesus was asleep on the pillow? Jesus was actually fully man. This is a reality. This isn't something that Paul you know, wrote to them and said, well, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of like a real person, only not really because he was a lot of God. In fact, a lot more God than he was a person. But kind of sort of, I really don't know how to explain this, but, you know, he looked a lot of man. You see, when Paul writes this, he said he, he actually was men, a man. He was born in the likeness of man. He was born. He was born of a virgin. Jesus actually is this God-man. That His divinity and His humanity come together in perfect harmony. That neither one having more power control than the other. Jesus isn't more God than He is 
man. He is fully God and fully man. It's one of the mysteries of Christianity. How he exists as both things fully at one time. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Not some fake humanity. You see in verse 8, he continues, and he says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, as, as Paul writes this, you see for us, crosses have really become a symbol of, of worship, they've become an identification for us, and so it becomes something we wear around our neck. But at the time Paul wrote this, Cicero wrote and said that a cross isn't something that you should bring up in civilized conversations. You just shouldn't do it because it's so crass. It's so derogatory. It's such a hideous word. I saw it all week to try to find something that was as crass and as hideous, and I just really couldn't come to anything that would polarize us this much. This is just, it was a dreaded and awful thing. And his citizens, Roman citizens, weren't even allowed to be put to death this way. The Roman Empire, recognizing they're an awful, hideous form of death, just, they outlawed it. They forbade any Roman from being put to death by a crucifixion. They chose decapitation instead for, for Roman criminals. The crucifixion, they outlawed. And so for Paul to write this, for him to say that he humbled himself to the point of death, really do something inside of us. That Jesus came knowing there were a great deal of us that would never surrender our lives to an obedience to Him. There's a great deal of us that are going to do what we want to do. We're going to pursue our own agendas. We're going to try and do it our way. And we're never going to submit our heart and our lives to Him and cry out to Him for salvation. Humble himself. Not that he was humble, but he chose to humble himself. And the extravagance of that is that he chose the most despicable, awful, horrendous form of death possible and out to the cross. So for them to get this and read this, or to hear it read, to be stunned as they continue to write like. He died for us. He died for me. But he wasn't just put to death. He died a horrific death. He died on the cross. He died for this Bible, this horrible thing that we're not even supposed to talk about in civilized conversation. Man, that's just how far Jesus held us. So when we look at the pattern of humility in Jesus, it should, it should cause us as, hum, as husbands to humble ourselves before our wives. It should cause those wives to humble yourself before your husband. It should cause children to be humble before their parents as they recognize the severe price that Christ paid. And he gives us this pattern of humility. And you know, as Christians together, we should really be just taken back. It's a level 
that Jesus went to to offer himself, the level that he went to to humble himself. And it should really just cause us to step back a second, really, should be forward. That God in Christ would enter into humanity. That he would take the form of a lowly slave, a lowly servant. That he would be born in the likeness of men in a backwater, nothing town, to a nothing family. That he wouldn't draw notoriety to himself. Back in a lot of ways, Jesus was shunned notoriety and trying to skirt around large crowds. And then in the end, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, this is the end of the story. Jesus. He didn't humble himself to the point of death, but as we move from crucifixion at the end of his incarnation to the exaltation, we see it there continuing. Paul writes in verses 9 through 11 that therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. You see, there's a misconception to step in for us here. That as we read this, therefore, that we're under the misconception that Jesus did A to receive B. This idea of quid pro quo. That I do something for you, you do something for me. You see, he didn't humble himself to the point of death so that God would exalt him. When he writes, therefore, what we see here is moving from the humiliation of the cross to the exaltation of Jesus, the exaltation of his name. A move from humiliation to exaltation. Now, Paul is a big fan of superlatives. So for Paul, everything is, you know, it's like super abundant. It's the best best. It's the super best. You know, in some ways, when Paul writes, when he's pointing me words, it's like talking to uh, some teenagers that I've talked to, you know, like, how was your day? It was super amazing, fantastic! Awesome. Good. Uh, uh, but, but better than that. Really not able to articulate. And that's the height that Paul writes here that Jesus is exalted to. He says that he's highly exalted. He's lifted up so high, so much beyond what we can understand, fathom, comprehend. He's super exalted. And then in his name, every knee should bow. And this is a sign of deference, a sign that you rightly recognize where you are, you rightly recognize where he is, and what that causes you to do is to bow in humility before him. We bow in humility before him. He says that it would happen heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now Paul's not making reference to miners. He's not making a reference to those flying in triple sevens through the sky. Um, you know, some modern interpretation I said, Paul here was quite prescient. He understood the you know, advances in technology and gold mines and sword and also the men would fly someday. That's just silly, right? And it's absolutely ludicrous. What Paul's reference is is that that every being, so every angelic power, every demon dwelling in the heavens, dwelling outside of this, this planet, and 
every person that walks the earth, and every person that used to walk this earth, that is now buried. So they live under the earth. The devil will come a time when each one of those will bow out of respect to Jesus. And then every tongue will be forced to confess that he is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And see, the importance of this is found in Isaiah. In Isaiah 43, in verse 2, or 45, I'm sorry, 45, 23, Isaiah's writing, he's writing about God. If you have time this afternoon, you can go through and read through it. It's really describing how God is the only Savior of humanity. So he's doing good, he has all these qualifiers. None shall be saved outside of me. I'm the only one who can say, I will redeem this. I will do that. No other God will do this. And when he gets to verse 23, he says, To me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. You see, when Paul writes this, he's drawing a connection for those people. That Jesus is God. That there is none other there is no other God in whom you can be saved, or another name in whom you might cry to, that Jesus is God. And so he drives that point to The amazing thing in this is we see that back in the beginning when we said that Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, like hold up, taken advantage of. That even here in verse 11, that the point of his entrance into time, that the point of his death, that the point of him leaving earth, being super exalted, is so that God may be glorified. So that God may be glorified. You see, looking at Christ as a pattern of what consequences come with our decisions, we should be considering when we go to do things, will my decision glorify God? Will we taking this position in this new job? Will it glorify God? Will the way that I speak to my spouse or the way that I respond to my parents glorify God? You see, Christianity isn't a compartmentalized faith, but it's a faith that spills over to every avenue, into every facet of our lives. So every decision we make, every word we utter, every thought that enters our minds, what we should be focused on is, how is this, or does this, glorify God? You see, there's a way to look at this passage in parallel form. You see, there are those that, that see in the narrative of Christ a parallel of the, the narrative of Adam. And in some ways, this is, this is really appropriate for us to look at. You see, Adam was made in the image of God. Christ dwelt in the form of God as God. And Adam desired to be like God. And he saw the fruit on the tree and he grasped for it. And he took it greedily. When Christ evaluated the situation, he did not consider the quality of God something to be grasped, flaunted, Taking advantage. 
or Adam exalted, exalted himself in his pursuit. Adam trying to become like God and sought to exalt himself. Christ humbled himself, taking the form of a slave. You can see in Adam, through his disobedience, brings us all life. The Bible tells us that all in the way of Adam have inherited his sin nature. That you and I have sinned, that we have done things against our holy God, and outside of salvation offered in Jesus, there's absolutely no hope for us. There's no good thing we can do, no great thing we can say, no amount of money, no amount of time served, that can get us in that. But Jesus, through his obedience, brings all to life. Jesus, who if you choose to follow and you choose to surrender yourself to, offers you life. He offers you a share in his righteousness before God so that you might be saved. You see, so to save, this is where we need to live with a ready recognition that our reigning Lord sits in heaven. Right? It's every thought every motive, every decision is taken captive in that. That we surrender my life, our life, I surrender my life, you surrender yours. My decisions aren't just my own anymore. Because I have a reigning Lord that sits on the throne. So every decision I make is met against that. Every way I spend my money, every way I spend my time is met on that. That I have a reigning Lord sitting in heaven. When I evaluate my decisions on whether or not they will glorify God. Man, if you're unsaved and you sit here, you're stuck in the line of that. There's no matter of you can do. There's no matter of money you can give to charities, time you can serve in churches, little ladies you can help across the street. Because you're stuck in disobedience to that. Man, there's good news to you. <clears throat> that just as you were dead in your trespasses, that Jesus came, that he was crucified before the foundations of the earth to offer you salvation. And so the call to save is obedience. And the call to the unsaved is allegiance to Jesus, that you might humble yourselves and be saved in his name. Let me pray for you.